Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A speech about the zero lower bound a day before the blackout, weeks before the Federal Reserve decision, are we meant to believe it was purely academic? I, I, it's like the smoke signals of Arthur Burns' pipe. It's, it's become a parlor game, and the good news is we have the right guest to try and parse the silliness of this July. James it's Sweeney. just unreal. Credit Suisse, Chief Economist, dropping by the studio. Great to see you, James. Try and make sense of this for us. What on earth has happened with FedSpeak in the last 24 hours? Well, everything I say is part of an academic speech and has nothing to do with <laughs> of the course, world. Of course, of um, course. Yeah, I, I think the Fed has signaled that they're going to cut. I mean, we expect them to cut by 25. Um, the market speculation is maybe they'll do 50. Uh, ironically, the data says maybe they should do zero, but uh, but the market is really debating whether they're going to do 25 or 50. And the comments from uh, from President Williams yesterday uh, really moved the market sharply toward expecting 50. And then he brought that back later in the day. Did he bring it back because they're not going to do 50 and he doesn't want the market mispriced? Or did he bring it back because they're going to do 50 and he wants to surprise <laughs> the market and have everyone excited about a dovish shock from the Fed? I'm not sure. But, you know, again, I don't think the data really supports any cut at all. Yeah. So we're going to continue to forecast 25. The heart of this discussion is we're asking too much from one institution. Forget about the names of the people. Governor Farrow, you know, you know whatever. No, nobody needs that. It's just we're asking too much of economists who have a toolkit that everyone agrees, including Vice Chairman Clarida with world-class research, which is prone to probabilities and likelihoods, right? I think that's fair. And, and I, I think even, you know, a lot of the presidents, including uh, Mr. Williams, were passed um, research heads at their local feds um, and, you know, very competent monetary policy experts, um, but, you know, a certain kind of people uh, may be prone to a certain kind of thinking and well, lots of papers about the scary zero bound. Let's go to the inertial force here. Is it linear? They cut 25. Let's forget about 50 basis point. They cut 25. Then they cut another 25. And we see the data. I get all that. Is it, that's a measured Greenspanian linear move. I don't buy it for a minute. When does the oomph click in? Well, I, I think when you, when you need a sharp move, um, you know, you can, you can deliver that. But really the question is, do you need it? Governor, um, Governor Farrell was saying yesterday, no. <laughs> I well, think most people don't think you need it right now. I think the communication we've had quite clearly from the Fed, though, is that they think they need to get ahead of it. They need to do more with less. They have limited ammunition. Don't wait for it to materialize. James, I think that's why so many people find it so confusing at the yeah. moment, because they look at the hard data in America and they say things are OK. Then they listen to the Fed and the communication and they're wondering what's wrong. Well, the, the real Taylor rule probably should have PMIs and, and forward break evens in it. And, and it, it feels like it's a good point. Yeah, it feels like that's what they're responding to, um, because I, I think the Taylor rule that has you know, forward actual inflation and you know, forward actual unemployment um, based on really what you can see now uh, doesn't really suggest a breakdown of inflation or, or a rise in, in unemployment. So, so, you, so would, you have to have a pro, you, ha, you have to be forecasting 
something meaningful in the absence of cuts to justify cuts, and, and right. we're not. Is there value to the five-year, five-year forwards looking out five years and then five years forward from that? Is that too far out? It's not. There's not really much value because it's it's basically very correlated with oil prices, and it's really yeah. telling you whether the 10-year the and the 30-year are going up and down or not. So what's the x-axis of tools that would be useful for them? And the answer is a la PMIs. It's shockingly short, isn't it? Well, the PMIs, I don't. I, I think they do definitely respond to, and we've done some some thorough empirical work showing that both the ECB and the Fed tend to react to sharp moves down in in PMIs. But the problem is the labor market well, tends not to react to sharp we, move downs in PM, to PMIs. You so. and I did thorough empirical work. Was that over those beers? Yes, those, those, that's that's that, our version it of was, it. Paul Sweeney had us over for Budweiser's, and we did our empirical work on PMIs, right? Uh, James, just thinking about things at the moment, the research that you guys have done on industrial production worldwide and manufacturing, you came out quite early and said that there are some one-off factors behind the manufacturing recession we are seeing as it was gaining momentum. And you think they're fading. And what I find really interesting is not where we are right now, where we'll be month end, we're set to get an interest rate cut. It's what the economy looks like going into the back end of this year. And your base case with a rate cut, without a rate cut, is things are going to improve. So just walk me through that, because I think it's important. Right, well, I I really separate the, the real economy into global manufacturing trade, industrial production, which of course has a US component, and labor market households in, in developed economies. So on the, on the first, on industrial production, basically uh, trade uncertainty, tariff fears, caused a sharp, sharp slowdown towards the end of last year, centered on a drop in imports in China. Uh, and so from October to March, you had really bad global industrial production growth. And the Chinese industrial production data for mysterious reasons didn't really reflect it. But um, but I, I think, you know, I, I think we had a really big slump. It wasn't a US slump, but it was a big slump. March to May, we actually had some recovery. Um, since, since the tariffs went up, it's likely that we're back in that slump in manufacturing activity. Uh, investment is likely to be pretty soft in manufacturing yeah. globally. But meanwhile, the labor market in the U.S., nothing has happened. Inflation in the U.S., nothing has happened either. Financial services inflation, which they can't right. measure, came down a little bit. Basically, the rest of the inflation data are stable, and if anything, core inflation is likely I, I, to rise. So, so you know, basically, you've got two things. You've got a manufacturing slump, which should really get no worse, but not really, you know, we don't see robust growth, and inflation and, and, and unemployment, where basically still nothing is happening. I, I've never seen Sweeney this fired up. What's solid mean to you when, when, the, when these fancy guys at these institutions say it's a solid economy? What's solid to you, the consumer? I mean, right now, 70%? I mean, the unemployment is at 3637. Uh, GDP growth for the first half of the year is going to be mid twos. Um, you know, corporates, uh, the flow of credit to just about anyone who wants it in the U.S. This is is, great. is is pretty good right now. So what's not solid is, okay. is really the this question. This is great. James Sweeney with Credit Suisse with us. David Blanchflower is no doubt listening up in Hanover, New Hampshire, going, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He wants... Do you think Danny wants 50 beeps now or 25? I'm not sure, actually. I haven't spoken to him for a couple of weeks, but I, I imagine it's up there near the 50 level. I think he wants a big adjustment. Too short a visit now with Catherine Mann. 
of Citigroup, their chief economist, and always Kathy Mann on international economics, except we're not going to do that on a New York Friday. We're going to talk domestic economics with Dr. Mann. What is the research that you see with your vast team at Citigroup? Is it an economy that justifies no decision, I guess an out front 25 basis point cut, or Catherine, can you get all dramatic today and tell me we need a 50 basis point cut? Well, you know, I think that there's been um, some real challenging uh, communications uh, that the Fed has been uh, presenting to us. I think uh, your uh, person who was on before talks about fresh clues as if, you know, we're yeah. trying to uncover the true Fed. And I, I think where the real challenge here is that there was a very dramatic pivot from language that used the vocabulary of patient, monitor, data dependence mm-hmm. to change to language and, and vocabulary of preemptive preventive, large and bold move. And so, you know, it's like, wow, how did we all of a sudden move from patient and monitoring and data dependence to something completely different? Because the incoming data for the United States do not warrant the change in tone. And so it's what happened? What what did we see? And frankly, the incoming data from the foreign economies as well does not warrant the type of market pricing in of dramatic action right. of, you know, 50 basis points. The, mar- the market um, is pricing in much more than the data warrant, right. and they are effectively pricing in this recent language change, which is also a puzzle because the language changes is, is, right. is, all, well, is dramatic without the data being, Dr. With it being dramatic. Dr. Mann, how did we get to the point where we're preemptive And if you read Meltzer's three volumes or Timberlake of the Georgia School or Bernanke and the rest of it from academics, where's the evidence that preemptive works? Well, we can go back to the, you know, the long and variable lags uh, story about monetary policy, that it does take a long time for monetary policy to work through um, the real side of the economy. Um, because in the olden days, that was the channel. You changed monetary policy, uh, banks uh, reacted, then you had a change in the cost of capital uh, to cost of credit, and then, and then that followed through yeah. to the real economy. And so, so you did need to look very far forward uh, to prospects for the economy and um, adjust monetary policy appropriately in light of the change in, in economic activity. And then, of course, also we cared a lot about inflation, um, and that also had uh, long and variable lags to affect inflation. Um, but we're at a time right now where what matters more or seems to be much more of the dynamic is the market expects something to happen for the Fed to move in a particular way. And then if the Fed does not deliver on what the market expects, then that yields an implied tightening. Uh, The market believes the implied tightening, even if there's no change at all, the implied tightening generates a real tightening, or they believe so, and that real tightening has consequences for uh, the real side of the economy. 
and and you know mm. we, we can argue about whether or not that's that's appropriate or, or to consider but yep. it means the transmission mechanism is very different so Catherine I'm just looking at uh, one of your recent notes and the charts that you find interesting I'm looking at the uh, the one on job growth I mean you yep. know you look at some of the data you know, this is a, a data dependent fed uh, the jobs growth would suggest uh, that the Fed can maybe sit this one out, but that's not what the language seems to be. Well, that's right. I mean, as I say, we when the you know the the language uh, was patient monitor and data dependence, uh, and then it and then it really really pivoted very rapidly to this notion of uh, needing to have insurance cuts or preventive cuts, preemptive uh, cuts, uh, and I, I think that there you're getting very different language from from different members uh, of the broad body, not just the FOMC that is the voting body, but the broad body that addresses. Uh, the state of the U.S. economy, the state of the global economy, and how it impacts the U.S. economy as part of the decision-making process. So you are starting to, you know, you are seeing quite a range of views uh, in in the in the commentary. Uh, but but the the market yeah. has definitely tended to um, focus yeah. quite a bit more on this uh, preemptive, preventive, large and bold yeah. moves. That have come out in in the most recent uh, testimony and other uh, commentary. Uh, Dr. Man, the, the past several days. Uh, too short a visit, Dr. Mann. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really wonderful to get a briefing from Citigroup's chief economist, Catherine Mann, this morning. It's rare, Paul, that we have someone darken the door who has a degree in natural philosophy from William and Mary, which is so we can, cool. We could go so many ways with that. I, I, no, but I mean, I mean, in physics right now, William and Mary, it's the William Small Hall. Small was Thomas Jefferson's iconic mentor. Yep. Like Jefferson always said, this guy is a guy that jump-started him. Lisa Ellis with us. What was it like doing physics where you're supposed to do history? I mean, you go to William Mary to do American history and you got out a slide rule? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, William and Mary is beautiful, as you highlighted, steeped in history. I was actually there during the 300th uh, anniversary yeah. of the institution. and yeah. um, But it's uh, the natural sciences are strong, too. There's a lot of, um, NASA has a big... In, strong? In that barely describes it. Their <laughs> physics program is one of the best in the country. Paul, why don't you bring in from Moffat Nathanson, Lisa Ellis here, on a, on a 300-year-old computer company that ain't getting it done. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was saying earlier, I pulled up the five-year chart on IBM, and it's returned a whopping negative 1.2 percent over the last five years just looking at the stock so lisa i know they reported earnings what's what's the key takeaway here i know you're not real constructive on the stock here but what, what was the takeaway you, you took out of the earnings yeah there's they were mixed results that's the overall takeaway the two that the strong the big positive and the strong negative uh, pretty bipolar actually um on the on the positive side the software number which is a lot of what tends to move the stock on earnings was quite good 5.4 percent for their software business that's a very profitable business very important to the sort of perpetuation of the franchise. Um, on the flip side, however, their cloud number uh, was terrible. It was 5% in the quarter. That's down from 12% growth uh, last quarter. And this was a business that just in as of 2017 was doing 24%. And yeah. obviously, you compare that to you know Microsoft just reported, and for Microsoft Azure, they're putting up numbers like in excess of 60% growth. Yeah. So. 
All right, so that brings us to Red Hat. Red Hat, as I recall, uh, was a big acquisition, presumably going to help them in the cloud. What can you tell us about Red Hat? Do you think that is going to do what IBM needs to be done to their cloud business? Uh, well, it, it definitely helps. Um, you know, within the scale of IBM, um, unfortunately, just from a financial perspective, it doesn't move the needle that much just because of the difference in scale. Um, but from a competitiveness perspective, it helps them... The real area where IBM is struggling right now in cloud is in the platform as a service business. That's where they would compete with like a Microsoft Azure. Red Hat has one of the leading products in that space, their OpenShift product. Again, financially not a big deal. It's only a few hundred million in revenue, but more strategically, it's, it should help IBM's positioning in that space, where IBM's product uh, you know, has been lagging those peers. I look at the vectors of their income statement, and frankly, if you didn't know it was IBM, they're constructive. EBITDA, managed rising, uh, free cash flow, managed rising. The revenue line is an unmitigated disaster. At the board level, are they just simply managing IBM to be a smaller company? Uh, realistically, uh, yes. I mean, they are in you know, that sort of like shrink to grow type of mode. Uh, Does that work in your experience at McKinsey years ago? <laughs> Does McKinsey do shrink to grow? <laughs> what is that? Well, I mean, meaning there are pieces of IBM that are in areas of IT, of, of IT that are in structural decline and they've got to like work their way. <laughs> well, the challenge is that you know, IBM is really about major large customers where they are selling almost like an all-you-can-eat. They sell hundreds of millions in software, servers, services, And Microsoft's storage. not doing that. Microsoft does that as, as well. That's true. But they... The point is you can't really break apart those pieces. It's like the, you know, it's like these large customer uh, situations. So they sort of have to just manage, manage through that, you know, runoff of some of the I, declining areas. I did not know this. They have 350,000 employees. Yeah. Wow. That's right. It's because they, they still are the, the, within IBM. Um, they have uh, a li over 40, you know, over half of IBM's revenue is in services. They, they actually are still, although Accenture is inching up on them, the single largest IT services player out there. That's why they, yep. that's the hundreds of thousands of employees are their IT services so, Lisa, I see on August 2nd, they're having an investor webcast. They're not even going to bring you in for the rubber chicken. It's just a <laughs> webcast. So what do they need to get across to the street on this August 2nd kind of webcast with this kind of their investor meeting? The, the, um, well, the, the key thing in the immediate term for the street is going to be numbers. There is some uncertainty around how... Red Hat, because it's a software company, there's this purchase accounting dynamics is going to fold in. So they're going to give new 2019 guidance. They're also going to give some new medium term guidance around the revenue and earnings and free cash flow impacts on the business. For the street, honestly, a lot of it will be about that. But I think to get the stock to move positively, they'll need to give more tangible um, nearer term, meaning 2020 type of time frame, uh, synergies from Red Hat. They talk a lot about the concept of the synergies, exactly. but not a lot about the well, numbers. But they've been doing that for 10 years. I mean, they're all concept. I mean, well, you know, the stock is up 34% this year. Let's give them a little um, bit of a break. Okay. They're at 150. Your target's 121, right? 
That's right. How soon do we get to your target? I mean, is this by next week or? Uh, no, we would, we, I mean, our price targets are one year price targets. So that would be a one year time frame. Um, the big, the big question marks yeah. are going to be, you know, the, this, you know, will, will Red Hat really, it, it can't just be Red Hat folded into IBM. Red Hat has to make the broader IBM businesses be better to really change that long-term, like you said, that long-term negative trajectory on the revenue. And that's what we'll all be watching for. Just does that cloud number get better, right? Yeah. That cloud number 5% versus Azure at 63, I think, percent or 67 was the number they put up. You know, that those growth rates need to start normalizing a Do you bit. sit in the same room with Moffat and Nathanson? Do you have to hear them blather on about media <laughs> all day? They do. They sit right to, right down the hall from and, me. And you mm -hmm. just, you just, all day it's media, media talk, right? Media, media, cable. What's the content, very quickly, what's the content of IBM? It's a Nathanson question. What's the content of IBM? Uh, meaning like what? What's their future? What's the oh, oh. code? Yeah, that mean cloud software services that's i mean they they're what the dna and the specialty there of I ibm is, is infrastructure is is big enterprise it infrastructure services right. like the platforms that run business software so this includes right. everything from the servers the storage the middleware layers the service you know the labor that wraps oh, around man. that and that's what's yeah. moving into these cloud models, and they need to be a leader there. Lisa, thank you so much. Lisa Ellis, Moffitt Nathanson with a cell on international business. Right now, uh, out of Stanford, Anat Amadi joins us. She has been just superb on questioning banks in the shadows of the shadows within our banking system around it. Professor Amadi joined us this morning. Wonderful to have you with us, uh, Professor. You write about the leverage ratchet effect. Are we leveraging up as a global system as we did in 2005 and 2006? Yeah, I think that basically the system continues to be built on piles and piles uh, of debt. And we, you know, it all works wonderfully with leverage on the upside. But there's leverage on the upside. Is the character of the leverage buildup this time, is it different than what we saw 12 years ago? You know, there, there are always variations on exactly what it is that, that's the underlying assets. But uh, fundamentally, you know, that is that. You invest in various things. You call them, you know, loans or other real-world real world economy. Uh, firms, uh, small businesses, you know, leveraged loans, they now call them uh, covenant light loans, you know, not subprime mortgages, um, mm -hmm. where households are as indebted. But uh, yes, that is a huge part of the, the economy. So, Professor, just 10 years after the financial crisis, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of, or your sense of, kind of the, the state of the U.S. financial system. Is it safer than it was pre-crisis? I don't think it's fundamentally safer. I think uh, it's, it, uh, you, you could imagine where the next big shock will come from. Will it come from, from you know, business or corporations defaults, or will it come from, uh, I'm kind of scared of any kind of cyber 
problem, uh, any many hacking yeah. or some systems crashing, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, a, a fragile system collapses. So I think that it still remains very difficult to see through a system that's so connected and so global. And so uh, there is a lot of debt and a lot of debt that we don't see it off balance sheet commitment yeah. and things that can sort of trigger all kinds of contagion mechanisms that we saw. So I'm not, I'm not feeling that it's much different. Professor, in your paper, you have a wonderful literature review of thinking about our behavior when we leverage up. And you go yep. back to, you know, I love the paper from the late 80s, Jacob Frankel, folks, now the chairman of J.P. Morgan International, Michael Dooley, legendary, and Peter Wickham as well. And I remember that paper as being foundational to the fact that we leverage and then we're successful, so we feel good. So yep. we leverage more yep. and we feel successful, yep. so we feel good, which everybody would yep. say, well, that's a normal human condition. Yeah. What's changed now from the time of Frankel, Dooley, and Wickham? Not much. Our paper that you're referring to, for me, was a revelation because for a long time we, you know, we teach basic uh, corporate finance and we teach about that and equity funding and we have a very static yes. way of thinking about it. You know, you sort of put in place debt and equity and then the world ends, <laughs> at least in the story we tell, and we talk about how the risk gets between that and equity and all of that. But if you look at it for a living, breathing, you know, firm, what ends up happening is that there's a very, uh, over time, because you keep making decisions, both investments and exactly. both sides of the balance sheet, you become sort of addicted to it. And that's what we explored. And it's interesting because a while ago when I got into banking, someone was talking about why, about leveraging exactly what, what you're saying, that if you gamble with borrowed money and you succeed, yeah. then you think leverage is wonderful and that you're smart. Yeah, you're a genius. So now, thank you so much. And Adamati with us uh, from Stanford, the leverage ratchet effect. Mia Feynman joins us now, the curator in photography at the museum uh, with an ample history of massaging black and white film, and she joins us uh, now. Mia, congratulations on your show. Have you been stunned by the turnout? I visited a couple days ago, and it was packed. Is, is it had a genuine interest? Oh, hi, Tom. Uh, yeah, it's been a very popular show, uh, but I, I did expect that. I mean, everybody likes the moon. You know, it's and and with the anniversary, there's just so much going on around uh, Apollo 11 and yeah. people thinking about the impact. I love the imagery, and then you slam it at the end with the TV set, the old antique 1969 TV set of Walter Cronkite. Why did you do that? Why did you go from the still photography all the way through the imagery, the paintings, and then right at the end, boom, there we were in 1969? Um, well... We thought it would be, we had to show the video in some way because it really was the first worldwide media event that everybody tuned into. And that's how most people experienced this moment. And so we felt that putting it on a vintage television set 
and letting people watch the CBS news footage uh, and see Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon was a way of bringing that experience to life in a visceral way. There are imageries within all of our past about science and, of course, the huge uproar now of, some would say, the death of science. We thank New Jersey Institute of Technology for their commitment on Bloomberg's (laughs) surveillance to science. But, you know, I think of Peter Coyote and the keys clinking in E.T., and they're just these, these images that we have. And so much of that comes from Tom Hanks, the actor. He wrote the introduction to your book. Explain how Tom Hanks looks at your moon show in this moment of Apollo history. Uh, well, Tom Hanks's introduction is really beautiful and poetic. And he sort of steps back and, uh, you know, looks at the big picture of, you know, what the mystery of the moon and how this mysterious, shining orb in the sky has always fascinated human beings from the very beginning of time um, and looks at the different ways, you know, sort of talks, thinks about the different ways that people have interpreted the moon, you know, as a goddess, um, as, you know, and, and, you know, up into the the space age where we actually were able to um, get human beings there to another planet in in, time and putting the chronology together what was the biggest surprise for you i mean you're expert in you know the derogotypes and the photography and the film and all that and the art and the other exhibit as well but what was the biggest surprise for you in that chronology um well i had never really thought about the far side of the moon the, the side that we never see and how that is always been the ultimate mystery, something that human eyes had never seen until 1959 when the Soviets sent an orbiter around the moon with a camera inside of it, and they sent some pictures back, and this photograph that's in the exhibition is the first time anyone, any human being has ever seen this. And that, that I found kind of moving and 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 you know a little thrilling you know so that was that was a surprise for me if you're joining us on this day of apollo 11 mia Feynman with us with a spectacular show at the metropolitan museum of art of the imagery of the moon and it goes back to a friedrich painting that we all grew up with you had everything but did you do you have a copy of good night moon in there the children's book that everybody grew up that's we've got that in the gift shop you have in the gift shop. Yeah. You, I, you yeah. couldn't get a first edition of Good Night Moon to, to show <laughs> yeah. the literature so, of it. <laughs> There's so much popular culture around the moon. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if we, if we had, like, you know, another few galleries, yeah. we could have gone it down that road. But we just we had to make a lot of hard decisions yeah. about what to include and what not to include in the, in the exhibition itself. And some very good decisions as well. Mia Feynman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, an incredibly busy week, a successful show at the Metropolitan uh, Muse, uh, uh, Museum of Art. Apollo's Muse, the moon in the age of photography. Really can't say enough about it as well. Right now, uh, with my past and his past, Robert Moon shows up. Of course, he has provided huge leadership for surveillance on the STEM report every morning and the science of it. And you and I go way back on this to the absolute sweat, Bob Moon, and it's seen in Mia Feynman's show. We didn't know what we were landing on, did we? No, not until we, <laughs> we finally no clue. we finally put some sort of spacecraft up there to take high-resolution pictures. 
And, you know, you and I were kids. We were kids once. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe. I had a bow tie on, though, folks. <laughs> and, uh, and when I was a kid, my mother worked for Hughes Aircraft. Yeah. And they built the Surveyor a Lander. And, uh, and I remember all the while she was doing the wiring. She was doing the, the harnesses that held all the wires yeah. that ran the cameras and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I remember her telling me what she was doing and not quite really understanding the significance and, of it. And what's great about it, whether it's Surveyor, which my father was hugely excited about. He did not, was an involved, a ranger, which was, as a kid, was so exciting because a they're going to fly it right into the moon and there'll be that last photo yep. uh, before. And this, folks, this is way before 69. This is like five, six, seven years before is it was all bolts and steel. You know, you think about... Uh, it, it was a rector set. How did we, in that very short amount of time, get to the moon? And I think about all these stories, like my mom's story, of all these people all across the country yeah. having a role in getting us there. I mean, she had a personal role in finding out if we could even land on the surface of the moon by helping to build that and, spacecraft. Yeah. People built the rocket engines. People built the the the, uh, the lander that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin used. That was a Grumman uh, product. And, and all of those different things. Uh, indulge me with just a quick bit of family folklore. Please. When I was growing up, I came home from school one day, a little kid, and there was a manila envelope sitting on the living room table. And I asked my mom, what's that? And she showed it to me. She pulled out a picture of herself. It was a glossy picture of her in a one-piece ba piece bathing suit. Uh, this is radio. Be careful, suit. Bob. Right. And I, <clears throat> what's that? She said, well, they needed to test the cameras for the surveyor, and so they took this picture. Which is a resolution study. And a, that yeah. sort of thing. And yeah. uh, I... I didn't know whether that meant that her picture well, was going to be on the moon. To this day, I think I looked at the the schematic for the surveyor. Yeah. There's a little little part of the surveyor that says focusing target. Yeah. And I wonder if my mom is up there Your on the mother's moon. Your mother's <laughs> up there as a focusing target. I got a million anecdotes of this, folks, and I'll just give you one. When I was 15, I couldn't go to Germany. There was a stamp in my passport that I was not allowed to go to Germany. Huh. That's how tense it was. It was really, as you know, at Hughes, mm -hmm. my father was with the Eastman Kodak Company up in the land of Genesee. And uh, it, it was, you know, within all the remembrance of it, it was really serious time, wasn't it? It was. It was we were yeah. in a race to the moon. We were in a race to the moon, and it was serious. Bob Moon, thank you so much for those uh, remembrances. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.